Primary Care Knowledge Boost, COVID-19, Episode 3, Managing COVID Patients in General Practice. Welcome back to our series on COVID-19 in general practice. We're hoping you're all keeping well. For those that have been in touch on Twitter and the recent lovely comments that we've had on Twitter or Podbean, thank you very, very much. Uh, It's been really lovely to hear from everyone. Today, we're joined electronically again by resident COVID representatives, Dr. Joanna Birch and Dr. Vera Mehta. Um, So yeah, today we're talking about managing suspected COVID patients in primary care, covering things like how to triage patients, face-to-face consultations and PPE, and the current thoughts around antibiotic prescribing in those patients and the new NICE guidance about that. Um, So for people who haven't uh, heard our last episode, do you guys want to reintroduce yourself for everyone? So hello, I'm Joanna Bircher. I'm a GP partner in Staley Bridge, which is part of Tameside and Glossop CCG in Greater Manchester. And I'm here as part of the Greater Manchester GP Excellence Programme. And I'm Viren Mehta. I'm a GP at Cheadle Medical Practice, part of Stockport CCG. Um, I'm our local PCN clinical director and a clinical director at Stockport CCG as well. Brilliant. So before we talk about how to triage suspected COVID patients, um, obviously lots of us are doing a lot of reading around different topics at the moment. Have you found things this week that have been really useful for your practice? I think um, my reflection is is it can become quite an industry just trying to keep on top of all the COVID-related information that comes out. So obviously there are a kind of official guidance that comes out from both PHE and from NHS England. But actually there's quite a few um, sort of places out there where I've been getting my information. Um, so the first is obviously there's some nice guidance that's come out over the weekend. So um, we'll cover that obviously on, on the podcast today. Um, the other place I, I find really helpful is the Primary Care Pathways um, website. Um, so they, they've got a specific COVID-19 section where basically lots of different links from all over the place are being put there, um, both from a sort of structural organisational perspective, but also clinical. Um, so that, that's been quite helpful. And there's also the Centre for Evidence-Based Medicine. Um, so that's Oxford University and Trish Greenhoff. So that I found that a really helpful resource as well. Uh, so there's some quite a few questions that are being asked on there, such as, um, you know, what sort of tool can you use to assess dyspnea? Um, can you use your smartphone for pulse oximeters? That Those kind of key questions that I think a lot of us are asking. Yeah, and a quick answer to that last bit is no, you can't, just in case anyone's wondering. <laughs> save you searching it um i think yeah if you read anything this week at all amongst the huge number of things that you sent read the nice guidance on the rapid assessment for pneumonia in the community and read the phe and what level of ppe personal protective equipment is recommended for which situation so i'd say definitely read those two if you've got no time for anything else Brilliant. We'll link to those um, so everyone can get access to them quickly as well. So I guess as a start, it's probably worth in this um, episode about COVID talking about how COVID actually presents. Is that a good place to start talking about the natural history of what it looks yeah, like? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I have been trying to do a bit of reading about this just because I think once you understand the natural history, that really helps you to understand how people might present to general practice. So I think a lot of this, I suppose it's important to say, is kind of um, people's opinion and people's experience rather than evidence. Um, so yeah. a lot of this is gleaned from primary and secondary care colleagues that I think have been dealing with a lot of COVID. So I think what a lot of people now seem to be understanding is, is the clinical course of COVID seems to be quite consistent and predictable. Um, clearly, as we well know, no patient um, ever follows the rule book. But I think actually more than most conditions, it does feel like there seems to be quite a, a typical pattern to COVID. 
So it seems like for most people, symptoms typically start about four to five days after exposure. Um, and then the initial symptoms often seem to be quite vague, a bit of headache, myalgia, lethargy. Um, and then kind of a couple of days after the onset is when people start to often start with cough and fever. And then normally a couple of days after that is when some of the breathlessness might might start. Um, people have talked about anosmia quite a lot. So that, yeah. that sort of effect of the sense of smell. And it definitely does seem to be something that's quite prominent. Um, but we don't really understand the relevance of it in terms of does it actually affect your clinical course? Are people with anosmia actually more likely to get poorly? That we still don't understand, but definitely it does seem to be something that's frequently reported. Diarrhea also is something that seems to come up quite a lot um, and a bit of GI upset, often quite short-lived, but again, a lot of people are reporting mm. that. Um, so for, for, I think, about 80 to 85% of cases, that's that's going to the, the course will be mild, they can be perfectly managed at home, and they're often improving by day seven. But for the remaining 15 to 20%, that's the group that seem to go on to develop more considerable symptoms, and that often seems to occur in week two. So I think one of the things that we'll talk about is obviously if you're triaging someone or talk, speaking to someone who's quite well in week one, um, don't assume that they, that they may stay that way. So what seems to happen is kind of from day six to 11 onwards, so as you get into week two, um, th those 15 to 20% might develop a bilateral viral pneumonia and there's damage to the lung parenchyma from the, from the virus. And that seems to cause more significant hypoxia. Um, people who've gone into hospital, chest x-rays actually show bilateral interstitial pneumonia, but x-ray findings don't particularly seem to correlate with blood, blood oxygen saturation. So in terms of how helpful I suppose those x-ray findings are, it's difficult to, to, to gauge. Yeah. Then around sort of day 10, between day 10 and 14, about 5% of patients experience that sort of rapid cytokine storm. And that seems to lead to acute respiratory distress syndrome or ARDS. Um, and that's where sort of the multi-organ failure um, happens. I think importantly, in a lot of people, that seems to happen quite rapidly, um, you know, sometimes within 12 to 24 hours, especially in the elderly. Um, speaking to a couple of the ITU consultants, pulmonary thrombosis seems to be something that they're seeing quite a lot of. Um, again, don't really understand the relevance of that. Um, but clearly, when we talk about antithrombotics and anticoagulants, that may later on become an issue. Um, so they're seeing that much more commonly than they would expect. And a few, a few cases of pericarditis have, have been reported as well. Um, blood tests often seem to show a low to normal white cell count. So you're not seeing a massively raised white cell count. Uh, CRP is usually raised and platelets can be low. I think the other thing that, that people on ITU are experiencing is acute renal failure and hypovolemia seems to be quite a big feature. Um, so I think some of the stuff that we've heard anecdotally around NSAIDs and ACE drugs might well be related to that, um, that particular issue. So I think as our understanding of COVID increases, that might be an area that we, that we look at. But certainly, I think while you're triaging patients, those nephrotoxic type drugs, it's certainly worth considering and having a look at those. That's things like diuretics, ACE and ARB drugs, metformin and NSAIDs, the DAM drugs that some people refer to. Um, yeah. I've been t telling patients to keep really well hydrated and drink lots of water. Again, no evidence based to that at all, but it just seems it just seems a sensible thing to do. Um, 
in terms of risk factors, I suppose, trying to predict those that are more likely to get the more severe COVID symptoms. I think most of us understand that it's older age, frailty and multimorbidity that seems to be um, the sort of main risk factors. And I suppose a lot of us are thinking about people with chronic respiratory disease. But actually, what those people on ITU, it is things like um, heart disease, diabetes, CKD, liver disease. And of course, immunosuppression is the other one. And again, there's been lots of talks of people on, on high dose steroids. And again, we don't yet have any definitive guidance around that, but that definitely seems to be a high risk area as well. So I think when you, when you, have, when you understand that clinical course, I think it then helps when we're thinking about the different stages at which people might present primary care. Hopefully. Mm. So yeah, I guess moving on from that, uh, maybe Joanna, do you have any tips for how we can then go about triaging these patients that might have COVID? Um, I was thinking just to add on to something that Verma was saying about oh, yeah. the, that, that typical kind of story of somebody with COVID is really the typical story of somebody that may then get the COVID that we need to really worry about. We do also need to be mindful of the fact that there's loads of us that have had it or are carrying it or which appear to have very few symptoms. And mm. and that's, I think, what makes this such a challenge. So a number of people that we speak to who've got um, atypical symptoms, kind of sore throat or the cough, but it doesn't really sound like the disease that Viren's described, may have COVID. Whether that COVID is causing the symptoms or not, it's really difficult to say. And, and so just makes it a bit more of a mystery but those that will end up that we need to worry about that will go on to be more severely ill seem to follow that stereotyped pattern in terms of triage I think I was really interested in a video I watched this weekend from a a medical director of the of a COVID acute center in Harrow particularly around a, a cohort of patients who perhaps don't have any particular other morbidity the younger patients who were managing to function reasonably well at home but actually when they were seen in their center or when they were admitted to hospital they had very low oxygen saturations so i think um, a really useful thing on on triage conversations is about um, what's happened with their breathing over time Mm -hmm. so um, what is it that they can't do um, now that they could do the day ago or two days ago and looking at that deterioration in the breathing is very likely to indicate a reduction in their oxygen saturations and they would be the people that we need to be particularly worried about I think that would be my tip lovely Viren any tips yeah so I think um, in the national guidance I suppose there was the kind of category one category two and category three patients so I think Mm -hmm. Joe's absolutely right we in general practice are often being contacted by lots of people in that category three people with mild symptoms and I think you know the experience of people who are now running some of these hot hubs is that don't think necessarily of COVID as just a snapshot one-off assessment actually sometimes it's it's that as with lots of things in in medicine it's that change over time that becomes really important Mm. and I think if you're getting someone who's contacted either yourself or 111 on the third or fourth occasion they're getting slightly worse every time they're the ones I'd say look just be really careful about and think about um so one of the things we're talking about in our practice is, um, you know, for the as, as Joe said, the difficulty is, you know, the vast majority, that 85% of the cohort will have mild symptoms and will get perfectly better and don't need any further intervention and can just be signposted to the 111 online advice. But there's mm-hmm. there, within that, those people that are contacting you, there is that small cohort that will go on um, to, to get worse. So um, what we've thought about is think about those patients who might not be able to recognise deterioration themselves. Mm-hmm. So if you've got somebody with learning disability, you've got 
got someone dementia, you've got someone who lives alone, maybe think about some proactive telephone follow-up every sort of 48 or 72 hours. So you might be able to pick them up. And if it's the same clinician that's calling them, you might pick up a change before the patient themselves does. So, you know, just thinking about that extra protection for some of those vulnerable patients might be might be helpful. Mm. And I'm starting to think that the only assessment that then they would really need if they had anything face to face was actually a SATS monitor potentially delivered to the Mm. house. They have a go walking upstairs and then measure them in case they decompensate very easily on exertion. This is all very anecdotal stuff at the moment. This isn't based on any any evidence, but it is a feel that we're getting for for this particular group that that, um, go downhill quickly. Interesting. And I guess actually um, you mentioned earlier about um, the proactive follow-up of people. Um, I guess incorporated into that is really good safety netting um, in your mild group so that they know what to look for for quick deterioration. Yeah, absolutely. I think safety netting is so important with COVID. And again, I would start thinking about as you're talking to more and more patients, how you you make sure that your patients are fully aware of what that safety netting involves. So, um, you know, quite often texting out some specific guidance afterwards. So quite a lot of people, it's worth thinking about, do you put something on your practice website and you just send a link out to it? There is the the 111 advice, which does go through all of that as well. So whether you use the national resources that are out there or whether you want to create something that's a bit more personal is completely up to you. But I think sending that text link out afterwards with that information could be really helpful because quite often, as with all of us you do, there's only so much you absorb um kind of on the phone call um so having having that reference that people can go back to can be really helpful yeah have you got an example of the type of things you'd be saying in terms of your safety netting for trying to catch those people who deteriorate i'd say that i would be very specific about this is about breathing the people who get significantly unwell from covid it's because of the viral pneumonia it causes and so um, the thing they really need to look out for is that if they suddenly find that they're getting breathless, just getting their pyjamas on, yeah. <laughs> um, then that's a worry. Contact us back and maybe give some really specific, depending on what the kind of ADLs they do, um, if they've got a flight of stairs and they can't get up them or and try and make that specific for them. Brilliant. Yeah, I think one thing I found is that because patients are often self-isolating, cocooning themselves in a room, they're actually not doing much activity to then know whether they're getting breathless. Yeah. So I actually think one of the things I've been saying is, you know, to people who are self-isolating, you know, do make sure you somehow as safely as possible in an as isolated way as possible, make sure you are trying to do some form of activity because that's the best way that you'll realise where actually there's there's a change happening. Yeah. Um, so I think that's quite helpful when you have that initial talk in, early on in the condition. Um, as I said, I think simple things like paracetamol and fluids and staying well hydrated and keeping well nourished seems really basic, but I think it, that I think that advice can still be helpful. Yeah, yeah. bears repeating. Yeah. Um, and then I think it is, you know, them being aware of what to do when they deteriorate. So the national guidance is still to contact 111, but we do know that in some cases there can be quite a long wait um, when people are doing that. Yeah. So I think having the other option of potentially contacting the practice back is also helpful, especially for those that you're worried about may deteriorate quite quickly. Um, a lot of people worried about face-to-face consultations. And if we have decided... Um, to bring somebody in face to face have you got any advice about how we're managing that well the and when the public health england issued their new guidance on ppe and they were clear that you if you were going to be assessing someone with possible covid face to face you need to have 
um, at least your apron, gloves, um, surgical fluid mask and some kind of eye protection. Um, and of course, the eye protection is something that hadn't been routinely delivered to general practice, although a lot of places are imaginatively accessing all sorts of um, ski goggles and um, um, dust protectors from screw fix we've had. We've just had a delivery of some visors which have been made on a 3D printer. Brilliant. By somebody local. And uh, they just delivered to our practice this morning that we can wear over the top of the mask. So I would say um, aim not to do it unless you've got what PHE is saying is your minimum protective um, equipment. And then thinking about how your practice is set up, I think we touched a little bit on this in the first episode. Um, we've got the benefit in our practice of having a separate entrance and exit that people who have possible COVID can use that no other um, staff member or patient would need to go through. And so and we've kind of curtained that off to make it clear that that's our red zone. Yeah. And as we mentioned on the first episode, keeping the contact as little as possible. Um, and it may just be SATs that you're and checking out for any other other diagnoses that aren't COVID. You're trying to do that as quickly as you possibly can in a safe zone. And then using your correct PP, knowing how to put it on, how to take it off yep. and how to give the room a clean down um, afterwards. So I think they're, they're the kind of, if you do have to do it, that would be the, the safest way. Lovely. I guess that kind of leads a little bit nicely into the NICE guidance because they've got some useful bits on there about um, looking at um, antibiotics in um, COVID patients, the pneumonias, all sorts of uh, bits about remote working and how difficult it is. Do you want to give a bit of a summary about what the take-home points are from that guideline? So it's only a few pages long, the NICE guidance, and it's a fairly easy read, which is um, not always the case with, with NICE guidance. Yeah. Uh, so uh, the guideline sort of takes you through the sort of diagnosis and assessment of suspected pneumonia in the context of COVID. Um, and it also has a, a bit of a helpful discussion about assessment tools. So that might be something that's worth mentioning. So people will have heard about things like CRB65. Lots of people may have heard about the Roth score that's being used. Mm. And there's also things like News2. Um, I think what that guidance and also the Centre of Evidence-Based Medicine says is that look, all these tools are potentially useful, but don't rely on them for your decision making. Yeah. It's mm -hmm. more that holistic assessment of somebody's dyspnea, as we've just talked about, that change, that recognition over, over the phone or over, over a video link and that impact on their activities of daily living that's more important. But people are still using them and, and some people do find it do find it helpful. Um, so I think the, the guidance says basically if somebody has typical COVID symptoms and they're becoming, they're getting symptoms of pneumonia after about a week um, and they're following that typical course that we've thought about, if they've got associated myalgia or anosmia and if they're breathless but they've not got pleuritic chest pain, then that's more likely to be a viral pneumonia. Right. If, on the other hand, you've got someone that's becoming rapidly unwell after a short duration of symptoms, if they've got a clinical course that doesn't really fit with COVID and they've got pleuritic chest pain or purulent phlegm, they're all more of the features of a bacterial pneumonia. Yeah. And what the guidance suggests is if you do suspect bacterial pneumonia, then um, in terms of the recommended treatment, their first line is doxycycline. 200 milligrams on the first day and then 100 milligrams thereafter once a day for a total of five days right. or second line is amoxicillin 500 milligrams three times a day again for a total of five days i think what strikes me most about that is actually 
um, most of that assessment is history and can be done over the phone and particularly over a video link. So actually, all of the stuff I've read is there seems to be very little place for chest auscultation um, in in the diagnosis and, and your your sort of decision making around COVID and pneumonia. Yeah. Um, and also things like throat examination. Again, um, you know, I'd be very wary of bringing people in specifically to do things like that. Lots of people have got very good experience now of doing um, throat examination over a video link. Um, and that really does reduce the risk to people. So I think, you know, as, as Joe sort of alluded to, I think when you're thinking about, do I bring somebody down for a face-to-face assessment? The question's got to be, is this going to dramatically change my management of this person? Mm-hmm. Um, and is it worth that, That you know, even though we're being told that with PPE, the risk is, you know, much reduced, is it worth that risk? Both not just to yourself, remember, it's also to the rest of your mm-hmm. staff and also to the patient of bringing, bringing you down to a, to a health facility. So just think really carefully about whether, whether that's necessary or not. Great. Brilliant. I mean, I think we are going to lower our threshold for antibiotic prescribing in general. That seems to be acknowledged. We're um, generally not fans of prescribing antibiotics over the phone, but we're in a completely different world at the moment. And I think if we kind of follow that that nice guidance as far as we can, we're likely to be erring on the side of antibiotics for many people who are who are in that not quite admission, but looking to starting to get breathless group, I think. Yeah. We will link to the guidance as well um, so that people have access to that too. Um, and I think the last question was just what do you what do you want people to take away from today's discussion? Um, I think for me, it's it's just understand that natural history of COVID and the fact that, that the clinical course will change. And there is a small it's, it's, and I suppose remembering that it is a very small cohort that develop those more severe symptoms. Um, but it's recognising, I suppose, and people being aware and patients being aware and give, you giving them the tools that they know what to do if things do get worse. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the other thing that actually um, was so uh, quite a lot of areas now have hot hubs. So GP practices may be triaging patients and then referring them or booking them into hot hubs. So I suppose just think about um that process so know what that process is in your local area make sure you understand what the pathway is what that hot hub needs to, to make sure that assessment is, is is as safe as possible for them so and it's little things that so quite often with a hot hub um, people are being asked to go down in the car they may be asked to wait in the car for some time until the hot hub is ready make sure you've advised them to go to the toilet before they go so they're not having to go into that building unnecessarily yeah. um, they may get asked to wear a mask when they go down there so that's the other that's the other change in the phe guidance is that suspected covid cases there may be a role now for putting a mask on the patient as well as yourself yeah. Yeah. um so that's there in the phe guidance as well now yeah and i guess my um thought for the day would be that we're all learning together on this yeah but um that sometimes I think as GPs we can assume that there's some expert out there that knows how to do it better than we do well actually in this world of COVID there aren't many of them um, and that we will gather our own experience and expertise um, as as we go on and so keep keep listening to podcasts like this and read as much as you can read watch videos of other people's experiences and then we'll all learn together it's lovely that was really good thank you very much guys (laughs) yeah it was lovely to chat to you again thank you okay thanks so yeah, that was really great chat again um, with Joanna and Viren, wasn't it, Sarah? Yeah, I really enjoyed going through the natural history of COVID um, and kind of thinking about those different types of patients, the ones to watch and how to actually safety net 
Yeah, definitely. That breakdown was really, really clear. I think it was really interesting to think about um, proactively following up the vulnerable group of people, Mm. like he said, that might not recognise deterioration in symptoms. Um, I thought that was really helpful to keep in mind for that group um, that might be on their own out there. Absolutely, yeah. And the other thing that um, I thought was interesting was about telling patients in the early stages to be active so that then you can recognise a deterioration um, because I hadn't put it through my head that they're not going to be doing the same things as normal. um, So might not realise that the breathing's getting worse. Yeah. Um, So yeah, I thought that was really good to talk about in your first consultation. Yeah, relating it to things that they're actually doing so they'll know to link it quicker. Exactly. Um, so you can get in touch with us as always. Um, it's particularly with this series, we really want to get your um, questions through so that this can be useful for you. So you can get us on Twitter. Our handle is at PCKB podcast, or you can email us on primarycarepodcasts at gmail.com. Yeah. And we've got our survey that's linked on the episode description when you're listening on any podcast app. And that's anonymous. So you can fill that in if you don't want to tell us who you are. <laughs> yeah. So we really hope you're keeping all well out there. The next episode that we've got coming out um, is going to be this week as well because of Easter um, and that's going to be around the changes to death certification in the Northwest. Till next time on Primary Care Knowledge Boost. Hey guys, just a friendly reminder that these podcasts are for healthcare professional education and shouldn't be used for medical advice by the general public. They were recorded in Greater Manchester in 2020. Guidelines can vary by location as well as over time so always check for up-to-date local and national guidelines before making treatment decisions. Uh, The content is based on our interviewee's opinion and interpretation of current best practice. It's your responsibility to use your clinical judgment before applying or relying on information solely from this podcast. Check out the episode description for full details and any links that we've mentioned in the episode.